Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Dr. Eliana Fu, Industry Manager, Aerospace and Medical, Trumpf. Welcome to the podcast, Eliana. Hi, it's so great to speak to you. It's great to have you here because Trump is over 100 years old, doing really great innovative stuff in and around manufacturing, and the company outside of that has almost half a century experience in laser technologies. I think lasers are cool. With a half a century experience, what advantages does this give Trump, and then how does it benefit your clients? Well, thanks for saying so. such nice things about Trump. Um, I first got to know Trump as a user when I was working at TWI in the UK, the Welding Institute. And um, we had Trump lasers, CO2 and ND YAG lasers in uh, the Laser and Sheet Welding Processes Group. And I came to know that name synonymous with being the gold standard in the highest quality of laser manufacturers for industrial lasers for cutting, welding, and then marking, surface structuring, cleaning, and now 3D printing. So I've always known it as you know a manufacturer of pretty high quality. And of course, with 50,000 employees worldwide, sort of a big brains trust that you can call upon for anything you need to know about photonics and um, industrial laser manufacturing, which is pretty awesome. Trump has the gold standard in, let's call it industrial lasers. You were a customer first. That's pretty special. So did you want to go join the gold standard? Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny seeing things from um, both sides of the industry supply chain. I actually also worked at a raw raw materials manufacturing back in um, a couple of years ago when I worked for the titanium company. I actually worked for a titanium supplier who is the biggest North American titanium company and with also pretty long history, 75 years history. Um, So... I kind of came to knew that if I wanted to work different sides of the supply chain, I kind of wanted to go for um, you know an employer who has a really great name, really great pedigree, and also kind of really understanding the subject matter, being the subject matter experts in whatever that field is. So let's say it's 3D printing, or let's say it's just um, high power lasers for cutting and welding, or low power lasers for even marking. And, and surface structuring. That's the kind of thing that I want to be associated with, yeah. You mentioned welding, you mentioned additive manufacturing. Is there a general trend or theme of how your customers are using the lasers? Or is it pretty much across the board where you design different lasers for different functions? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I think that laser technology, lasers can be used for so many things, right? From the low power to the high power for you know, helping us assemble space vehicles or aircraft parts or do all kinds of things. So I think it it really depends on the industry, how it's used and where it's used. And so as a complementary technique to maybe some other fusion welding process, if that's what you're interested in, let's say traditional arc welding, or you're interested in things like electron beam, Laser is uh, kind of in between those, depending on the thickness of the material you're trying to weld or cut, depending on the type of material, whether it's metallic, whether it's polymeric or or even glass. You know, I think lasers have a part to play in all kinds of things. For 3D printing, that's been my latest interest, I'd say, in the last 
eight to ten years I've really gotten deep into 3D printing and laser AM is a major part of that. I think if you say um, talk to people who have laser powder bed fusion or laser DED they're very familiar with that kind of process now and so I guess yeah that's right most of the people are interested in you know certain materials achieving certain thicknesses certain features and so laser am would be the tool that they use to accomplish making those parts when you're making the parts in the, in the 3d printing environment do your lasers improve that like what is there a competitive advantage to using your lasers versus a, say a more traditional 3d printer that you might buy from makerbot so yeah, you, you're talking about different processes and different materials. So if you're talking about metallic 3D printing, that's quite a different from, let's say the polymeric FDM fiber or even binder jet. It's a different process altogether. And so what I did when I was a user is look at the different processes what they're good for, what the material is that you're trying to work with and what the part needs. And so most of my career, I've been mostly working in metallics because that's where I came from. Actually, I have a master's and PhD in material science and engineering from Imperial College in London. And so I've got to say that mostly I've been doing titanium. <laughs> but um, in my later part of my career, when I was at SpaceX and then Relativity Space, Again, it was it was other metallics, but it's things like 718, it's high strength aluminium. Lately, it's been copper alloys and so on. So I've had to learn all kinds of different materials, not just titanium, but they've all been, I would say, metallic. So for metallics, really, if you're 3D printing metallics, the, the number one process that comes to mind is laser powder bed fusion. Um, so you'll see a lot of different manufacturers EOS, SLM, 3D Systems, Additive Industries, and so on and so on. And of course, Trumpf is there because that's perfect example of using a laser as a heat source to melt and then rapidly solidify your metallic material. So you can think of traditional welding process and using a laser for a welding process and 3D printing, metallic 3D printing, I would say, I was described as the offspring of welding and casting. So traditional welding, traditional casting, what happens during that process? You have a heat source, you have a material or a feedstock. You melt that metallic material, either by a laser, it could be EB, it could be an electric arc. So those are all sort of basic processes that we know from our welding world. So if you've ever done any manual welding, it's the same thing. With a laser, you're using a highly concentrated photon beam, if you like, or beam of collimated light to use as the heat source. And then what that's doing is melting blown powder, or if it's, if it's DED, powder bed, powder that's laid down in a limited area or volume, and then slowly built up layer by layer to make your part. So that's really what it is. Um, you can't use the same heat sources for polymers because they react in different ways. And obviously the melting point of polymers is way lower. So you're talking about different things altogether. So so it's, it's really important to go back to the start of the process. What am I trying to achieve? What am I trying to make? What is the part? What is the material? And the material drives the process. 
using the the welding example welders they fix things they they work on bridges they work on large infrastructure stuff and then there's also some smaller things where they have to weld if it's building a house with a, with a plumbing situation for example when you're doing the additive manufacturing can you do more complex parts say perhaps for a airplane or for a medical device that you couldn't just manufacture because of the scale it's not just scale it's also intricacy so this is where the beauty of 3d printing and using laser am for that additive manufacturing process comes into play so it's all very well having a but i like to say this actually let me go back and say you should use additive manufacturing where it makes sense so i like that you could 3D print, you could imagine 3D printing anything. And out of your sheer frustration with the traditional supply chain, you could say, oh, let's, let me just 3D print that. But actually take a step back because not everything should be 3D printed and not everything can be 3D printed. You may have limitations with the material. The material feedstock might not be available in the chemistry or grade that you want. And then the process might not be there. So you might want to print through print something by a laser powder bed that's as big as a house but there is no machine today that will allow you to print a powder bed part that's as big as a house so it's a little bit of both it really is limited by the process and the material so again it goes back to what am i trying to achieve what is the number one thing or the critical advantage that additive manufacturing is giving you and in my point of view it's always been either complexity, feature, feature size, or speed. So the lead time to get the part, especially in the last couple of years since the pandemic, we've seen supply chain really squeezed. And I think this is how the beauty of additive manufacturing is actually giving us something which is pretty amazing, which we, we never had in my, I'd say my, my stepdad, my stepdad worked 35 years at the titanium company in traditional titanium mill product, you know, um, ingot, billet, bar, sheet, plate. And you'd have to wait, you know, 52 weeks to get a sheet of titanium. You know, if you were to place an order today, you would have to wait 52 weeks to get a sheet of titanium in the grade that you want, just because of the complexity of traditional manufacturing shipping things all over the country, processing, heat treating, annealing, all that kind of thing. And with 3D printing, we can cut out a lot of that wasted lead time, a lot of that, I'd say, complexity in moving parts around a mill, or shipping things to different parts of the country, or waiting for heat treatment furnaces to become available. We can remove all of that stuff. And I think that that is so powerful as we look to free ourselves from some of those um, supply chain issues, like we saw with the Suez Canal or things being unable to be unloaded at the port of Long Beach, for example. When you mentioned speed, is the one potential speed bump access to having the specialty chemicals and the metals in-house? Could that be a potential speed bump for the speed there? There are some titanium alloys that contain element, alloying elements, which potentially are mined from foreign countries that have conflicts. And so if it's if there's some war going on in, in or some, you know, military action in some country where you have a vital component, you're waiting for that component to arrive. You're never going to be able to make your alloy, let alone your part. And so 
you know, by thinking about this and using the opportunity that additive manufacturing gives you to actually invent new compositions and new chemistries that don't have some of those critical elements that leave you open to, you know, weaknesses in assembling your aircraft or making your parts or whatever it is. I think that's a that's where we can make a crisis into an opportunity. You brought up the biggest issue facing the world now in, in the metals markets. You have certain, let's call them hostile governments that are doing things. And you're, you're, the president of Chile is now threatening to shut down the lithium mines. You're right. So you're going to have to find n- new chemistries there. When you, you, I want to go back to speed because let's just hypothetical scenario. You have all the right alloys. You have all the metals. They're in-house. They're in a, in a warehouse. What, how fast will that take to, uh, to additive manufacture that part? Is that a multi-week process? Is that an hour long? What does that look like? Obviously, different parts are more complex, but for a listener that says, oh, this is curious speed, is there just a general rule of thumb that you could share on that? There, there isn't because uh, I hate saying it depends, but it really depends. It, it depends what the part is, what the material you're trying to obtain is, whether that material is in high circulation i.e. whether it's regularly stocked by the material suppliers, whether it has any other kind of quality issues that it, it needs to get to the end user and who, where, and who and where those parts will be made because not everybody has, let's say, laser powder bed fusion machines on site. Some people use third-party service bureau to do the printing for them. And so then it becomes a question of logistics and supply chain again. Uh, whether your 3D printing service bureau regularly deals in uh, super alloy 718 or titanium Ti-64, those are very standard materials. And so lots of people tend to have those. But is there a shortage earlier on in the supply chain? And how much do you stock? How much do you take in inventory? And then when you take an inventory and no one gives you an order, you're stuck with all this material. So um, it's a complex issue. There's no right or wrong answer. In terms of coming up with new chemistries, though, I think that is something that more people could stand to look at. Don't just fall back on what you know if you're a designer and you know very well how to make a part in, let's say, 6061 T6 aluminium. And that's a very standard engineering material. But maybe there's a high strength aluminium material that is just waiting to be used that nobody has, you know, implemented it yet. And we have the raw materials domestically available that could be a new supply chain and a new business opportunity if only someone would use it. And so it's then a game. Who's going to be first? You're going to be first or I'm going to be first or someone goes first and blazes a trail and everybody follows. So again, it's a complex issue. There's no right or wrong answer. Are you seeing more attention paid to the supply chain? Because Trump was very successful managing the, the supply chain. There's been a lot of very public statements from the company of managing, but are you seeing your customers putting a larger focus on managing the supply chain and ensure that they have the the metals and materials that they need to 3D print ahead of time while not having excess inventory like we're seeing at Target today? Yeah, and I think some of that is because metallics typically already have a pretty long lead time. So I think that people have been aware of the situation. Besides this recent round of conflicts, I think people have been doing that since the pandemic. So I think that there's some thought given to it already. 
So that's really good. So, you, so you, we covered the supply chain, and then I, w- I want to dive in here into industries. You have a, a background in space. The space industry is using additive manufacturing. Are they using it in space? Are they using it on, on the ground? How is the space industry using this technology, and what are the benefits to the space industry? Well, thanks for this question. This is a brilliant question, and I love to talk about um, 3D printing for space and space exploration. I think that space exploration, while commercial aerospace during the pandemic was very slow, especially in the early days when people were staying home and not traveling, but the private space industry continued no matter what. And I thought that was an amazing thing to see. 3D printing let them solve various problems in the supply chain. And so whether you're talking about parts being printed on the ground, most of the parts will be printed on the ground, especially if they're metallic, obviously. But I was, you know, really doing my research, I was really thrilled to see how 3D printing is on the International Space Station, for example. That was pretty cool. And so that's an example of using 3D printing to not have to wait for the next supply mission because you couldn't find your wrench and the astronaut 3D printed his own wrench and um, various other things like that. So now we have 3D printing experiments. So by the way, that was printed with a plastic printer supplied by Made in Space, who are now called Redwire. And Redwire are doing lots of things in space using what's available. Obviously, printing metallics in space or on orbit is very difficult because number one, you don't have the heat source. Number two, how could you contain the material? And if you're talking about powder bread printing of metallics, I think that's very, very difficult at this point when you're talking about particles in microgravity that could be pyrophoric, for, for, for example. But 3D printing polymers is totally possible and that's what we've seen. They are also planning to unfurl a 3D printed structure in space. And if you want to know some more about that, one of the engineers at Redwire, Teddy Lee, has um, published quite a lot of papers on that subject. So you can um, hit up Teddy Lee and find out a little bit more about that. He also uh, published, presented a paper at the last rapid conference that we had this year. So I would say there's plenty of opportunity. And don't forget, as we expand into the Artemis program, and we're expanding on other planetary exploration, there's a possibility of printing with regolith, which um, is extremely exciting because the material to 3D print, let's say habitats and so on, is right there. So you don't have to bring anything with you. It's just the method of or process method how you're going to make that a viable, let's say you're building a habitat or a structure, make that suitable for protection against solar flares, for example, or any uh, solar winds or anything like that. So I don't know the answer to all of those, but those are so fascinating. And the journey that we're on as a community, as a 3D printing community, to put those ideas together, they're just amazing. It's a great time to be involved in additive manufacturing for space exploration. Hi, this is a hypothetical question. As you mentioned, Mars, as we, we go deeper and deeper into space and um, we eventually have space tourism, like was in 2001, a space odyssey, but we're going to leave HAL. HAL won't come with us, but we'll have this great adventure. Will 3D printing allow us to go deeper into space because of the ability to manufacture certain items that we might not have been able to get because how deep we are in space? 
I mean, there's two sides to that. One is raw materials that you find when you're there. The other is raw materials that you bring with you. And so you're always going to be limited by whatever payloads you bring with you. But I think what's more exciting are the things that you find when you're there. So, for example, you might find a planetary body like we saw in the TV show The Expanse, which actually is a book series, where they are mining um, lithium and rare earths in the asteroid belt, which I think is fascinating. And I think that we will see in the not too distant future or maybe distant future um, habitation in those planetary bodies where we can extract useful materials from and do the 3D printing right there. Um, I think we're going to see more and more of that. It's, I mean, the David Bowie song, Life on Mars, it really makes life on Mars practical depending on uh, what we can build. Yeah, exactly, because you've no need to bring it with you when it's right there. As long as you have the process and capability to turn what is there into a viable product. And at the same time, you should be mindful that we don't make the same mistakes on planetary bodies that we have on Earth, where we're, you know, exploiting the resources and not being mindful of uh, future generations, also utilization of the planets. And who owns those planets anyway? I don't really know the answer. But those are um, amazing thought processes and discussions to be had. Today, when an, an astronaut crew goes up, but well, most of them are going up in private um, aviation or private space with SpaceX taking astronauts to the International Space Station. And then is there limitations on the type of materials because of the weight issue that they can take up with them to the International Space Station? So you mentioned the plastic wrench. Is it more plastics because they're lighter than heavier materials due to the weight? Yes, but not only that. It's only be it's because it. if you were to try to take a metal 3D printer, there's no way that you could generate enough power to run a laser for the same length of time that you would if you were on Earth. So it's the power source, the power supply, and the material. Is the material dangerous? Is it harmful to human health if you inhale it or get it on your skin? Is it pyrophoric? You know, is it potentially flammable, a source of ignition? So all of those things. And if the mission of the ISS is understanding how environments in microgravity affect the human body and other experiments like plant growth and things like that, I think that's probably what their first overriding mission is, to understand how to live in microgravity or, and on other planetary bodies rather than 3D printing. 3D printing is not the goal of the space exploration. It's a tool that we use to get there. Tools are important. Uh, the engineers built the spaceships. Yeah, if you lose your tool, you can make a new one. <laughs> Exactly. It's not you. You can't go to to Home Depot or your, your local hardware store and say, "Hi, Bob. I need a. I need it." Exactly. If you lost the gasket, you lost the gasket, or you broke a gasket, you can't call down and get another one for another couple of weeks or months. So you have to make do. So I'm sure that that's what they did. But that great solution to a problem has shown us that's what additive manufacturing can give you some advantages. You know. It's a positive advantage, and and coming down from space, and we're we're back here on land. Are there limitations to the size and type of objects that could be printed using additive manufacturing? Are you just limited by space, or what are the limits? 
Well, um, going back to what I said about the processability and material and so on, we're starting to see bigger and bigger structures being built. So, for example, you saw there was a bridge in the Netherlands that was 3D printed. And um, here, I'm, I'm actually calling you from my house in Las Vegas at the Allegiant Stadium, the Raiders Stadium. I'm not a football fan, by the way. I'm just reporting on what I know. There is, so far the world's largest 3D printed sculpture, which is the torch. And it illuminates whenever I think Raiders score a touchdown. I, I don't really know too much about American football, but this is what I know. And it's a torch which has a flame, obviously it's an LED light, but it illuminates. And the so far, it is the world's biggest 3D printed art sculpture. I'm sure that is gonna be overtaken any day now because people are pushing the envelope or the limit of what we can do in terms of big structures. So the two biggest processes for printing those large structures today, I would say are laser DED, directed energy deposition that uses laser as a heat source with blown powder as feedstock or the wire arc additive process, also known as WAM. Both of these can make these big freeform structures that don't need to have necessarily a machine enclosure. So if you think you're limited by machine enclosure or having a 3D printer that's as big as a house, both of these processes can build you something that is bigger, potentially bigger than a house. We just haven't got there yet. I think the bridge in the Netherlands is probably the biggest thing that we've seen so far. And with also 3D printed sculptures, I mean, people are doing 3D printed parts for private homes, airports, museums, art galleries and so on. We're gonna start seeing more and more of those coming in, um, I'm pretty sure. If we haven't seen them yet, it's because they're secret projects that will be unveiled as time goes on. It's interesting if you look at an MRI went from a tube to to being open to accommodate um, the growing size of citizens around the world. Same thing could happen with three D printing. When when you mentioned the bridge, is that printed on site or is that printed off site and then shipped uh, to the bridge location? How do those big three D printed infrastructure projects work? I mean, I don't think you can print right over a river right now. <laughs> You need to have some kind of shop floor facility to do that. But the, the beauty of the 3D printing process is you could do that, you know, half a mile away from the site of assembly. So anywhere where you can have typical manufacturing processes, like as in an industrial shop, let's say, do some finishing, some final machining and assembly, and then you can ship it to the, the place. My point is that you can do that closer and closer to the point of utilization so that you don't have to you know send things halfway around the world and generate a huge amount of carbon emissions while you're doing that your carbon footprint can actually be smaller and that is also something that i don't know if a lot of people put two and two together when they talk about additive manufacturing and solving the lead time issue but also trying to be a bit more sustainable about it trying to be mindful of your carbon footprint. I think that's a huge advantage. And it's something to think about and keep in mind as you know, people do, especially in the medical area, more closer to the point of care. So we're seeing medical practitioners, dental practitioners, dental labs, 
doing more of that kind of work in 3D printing, implants, RPDs, abutments and so on, let's say for dental or orthopedic implants and things like that, or even instruments and tools, closer to the point of care. And indeed, lots of the research hospitals, the John Hopkins and the Cleveland clinics of this world are doing that kind of work also. Hey, look at orthodontists. Some orthodontists are 3D printing Invisaligns in their office and that a customer then could go home with a new set of Invisalign because they're not having to have it go into a truck to, to go on a plane potentially to bring it because all, all that carbon, they're eliminating all that carbon. So there is that very positive sustainability environmental angle there. And in your opinion, overall, what is the best use case of additive manufacturing? Is it bringing it close to where the it's going to be done? Or what is the best use case? It, it really depends what you're talking about. So for, for, from, from my point of view, let's just talk about dental, for example. The dental labs seem really open and dental practitioners are really open to embracing 3D printing now. Um, so I think some of them have a fascination with the process and, you know, they obviously can cut lead time. Cutting the lead time for waiting for dental parts is 100% going to reduce patient suffering. And bringing that time down, bringing the cost down also helps. It also really helps that a lot of these procedures and parts are covered by Medicaid and insurance now. So more and more people are, are interested in using those compared to the traditional manufacturing of those parts. And if you talk about the traditional casting of dental implants and things, it's more like an art form. And unfortunately, like so many careers in this country, those people are not re-entering the workforce or the people who, are, who have that knowledge and are retiring are not, you know, they're not rehiring to refill those positions. But they are potentially creating new jobs using the additive manufacturing techniques at dental labs. And so all these things seem, you know, to point in the right direction. So you reduce the lead time, you reduce patient suffering, you bring down the cost, you increase jobs for someone to learn a new skill. And then you're also making people more self-sufficient. The medical practitioners are fascinated by how this goes on. And they're also looking at that saying, you know, I can have a higher patient success rate. And so I think that extends to all different industries as well, you know, where people are blocked by trying to get, you know, a piece of titanium sheet metal, let's say. Once I've got the sheet metal and I've waited 52 weeks for it, I still have to process it. I still have to do uh, machining or super plastic forming and some other kind of heat treatment or whatever. And so that's not the end of the story, obtaining raw material. So all these things point to the same place. You know, I think reducing your carbon footprint is just a added side benefit, but a huge one. It's a, hu it's a huge positive benefit. You're creating a lot of good because that individual that their tooth hurts, they have to get, they're not going to suffer for as long. I'm very sorry, sir, ma'am. We have a supply chain. It's just not coming through. I can barely talk. I can barely talk. You're going to eliminate all the pain and suffering. Yes. Well, you can barely chew. I mean, yeah, think about that, right? You can't, you can't masticate your food. So that's terrible. And nobody likes to be in a position like that, right? People just want things faster, better, stronger. Sounds like a Daft Punk song, you know? <laughs> but that, that, that's good. Though. If you look at faster, stronger, better, there's smart factories. How are those being rolled out and implemented? 
Yeah, I think this is a great question. The idea of the smart factory or the factory of the future. If you're a technologist or a futurist or you're interested in making things better generally, I think the smart factory makes a lot of sense. So let's say you're any kind of industrial manufacturer and you're making parts. You could be making aircraft parts or any kind of parts for someone else, maybe even automotive. Um, having a smart factory where your work instructions are in the cloud and then they transfer from station to station to station and the part gets moved around by an autonomous forklift or, you know, kind of transportation device that does not need a human to move it from station to station. And then the manufacturing engineer can be anywhere and look on, let's say their iPad and or whatever, or device and see where the part is, what the machine utilization time was, what the efficiency is, if there are any blockages. And then, you know, you can be on that right away. I think that that is coupled with all the other advanced manufacturing processes that we have. A huge step forward into some of these bottlenecks and supply chain issues, and even some skill labor shortages that we have. Those are, I think, huge benefits. And those are things where if you're looking to the future, so for example, Trump has a smart factory in Chicago where we have demonstrations of this. You can wear a pair of like uh, Google glasses and you can see your instructions in like a Oculus type system. And then your instructions are, your work instructions move from station to station and you can see exactly where the parts are, how many parts are in, how what the quality is. And I think that will help you. More and more people should, if they want to learn about it, be interested in the factory of the future. And indeed, I think we will even see that's the beginning of machines building other machines. And that is mind blowing. When do we get there? <laughs> yeah, I think it all d depends on software networks and so on, like our 5G speeds and things like that. So if we have those better communication, wireless communications and so forth, um, security of supply, you can sort of guarantee a little bit more. So especially if you're in making military aircraft or parts for military aircraft, that's the kind of thing where you want to control the whole process. You don't have to ship things halfway across the country to do different sort of process parts. You can do that all in-house, all under one roof, and you can see where everything is. I mean, I remember when... I used to work in a forging company in Sheffield, UK, because I'm from the UK, and we would have what we call a traveller. And a traveller is a piece of paper with a quality stamp on it that have every work instruction written down step by step. And as the raw material comes in and is forged and is moved from different station to different station, a piece of paper goes with it, right? And that every operator who works on that piece of metal has to write on a piece of paper. I mean, I'm talking about like 15, 20 years ago, right? So to do away with the piece of paper, let's make it electronic, let's make it efficient, let's make it quality audited at every process and let's keep it under one roof. I mean, that is mind blowing to me. It's mind blowing, but it's also practical because some of your customers want to know the provenance. They want to know 
every step for compliance reasons of, of how it's done. And so now you have this digital footprint and they can turn it over to the regulator and say, okay, here it all is, sir. Here it all is, ma'am. It seems to me what you described with the smart factory that the benefits are endless. Is that a fair statement? So I'd say the benefits of smart factory are limitless at this moment in time in terms of what you think that machines can build in the future. They're only limited by the users right now. And so whether users decide to hand over manufacturing to machines, because we, we, we have also that fear that machines and robots are going to replace us. They're not. Humans will just be focused on different tasks, more efficient tasks and better use of our time. And so you can give machine processing over to machines and robots and cobots and so on to do very basic stuff. Anybody who wants to retain human processing of laborious tasks, uh, I, 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 I question their motives. Why would you want to waste an engineer's time deburring a sheet of metal by hand when you can use a better process, throw it under the laser and, and get that? Or how about this? Refine your laser processes so that you have burr-free edges when you do your cutting. So <laughs> those are things to think about. Lasers are fantastic. And in your opinion, what is the future of manufacturing? I think we're going to see uh, more advanced manufacturing. When I was um, living in Los Angeles, I actually helped um, Mayor Eric Garcetti with his advanced manufacturing committee, where he assigned a committee to go around the different industries in the Los Angeles area and California to help increase jobs and move the Los Angeles community into a higher state of manufacturability. So let's say it's the entertainment industry, it's the aerospace industry, it's the food and beverage industry, it's the medical, biomedical industry. You wouldn't believe it. All of these people can benefit from advanced manufacturing and coming together as a community to look at those things. Where can we improve? Where can we do things to work together to share our knowledge and actually reduce waste, reduce lead time, and actually, when I talk about waste, I don't just mean waste material. I mean also wasted effort, where we duplicate tasks for no reason. Why are we doing that? Why aren't we being more process efficient? And process efficiency also happens on the humanistic level as well as the machine level. Sharing knowledge is, is important. That's I mean, I love books. We have books. You're, you're the, the author's sharing their knowledge or the researcher's sharing their knowledge. So thank you for highlighting uh, sharing knowledge and the importance. And Eliana, as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? First of all, I'd like uh, everyone to know, thanks so much for listening, For first of all, and giving us the opportunity to speak. Advanced manufacturing, including laser technologies and additive manufacturing and 3D printing, are amazing. If you are a young person trying to get a career in STEM, consider this as a job opportunity, but also a career opportunity where you can expand yourself, learn about new things and contribute to, literally contribute to society <laughs> because that's how we get better as a species. So I've been reading a lot of things like uh, space exploration and we have the Artemis program blasting off next week. Uh, I've just been watching a show called For All Mankind, where they're talking about space exploration and so on. And it's a, um, a really great time, uh, despite a lot of negativity in the world, it's a really great time to be involved in learning more about these processes. And if you are sort of 
uh, on the fence about what career to, to choose, try some STEM activities, especially for the middle schoolers and people like that. We should try to encourage everybody to get involved. One of the things I like to do is also talk to middle school girls of color, because those are people who could enter the workforce as engineers, but they frequently don't know that these careers are available to them. And you could actually have a very rewarding career as an engineer or a scientist or a manufacturing engineer or anything and be part of this movement to, you know, increase our understanding and to literally make the world a better place, you know? We all want to make the world a better place because today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today, and the future is advanced manufacturing. Eliana, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as we welcome Billy Falheimer, co-founder and CEO at Regent. He'll discuss with us their high-speed zero-emission sea gliders that operate exclusively over water and the impact they'll have on coastal mobility. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.